You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is Mayor Enichacham. I'm schmoozing with Rav Mayor Schiller. We're talking today on Thanksgiving morning. And for me, Thanksgiving morning has a lot of unique memories. But what I centered in on for years was what NBC broadcast, which was the Thanksgiving Day Parade, specifically Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. It wasn't just a Thanksgiving Day Parade. You know, this is what kids all over America were watching. Of, you know, and, and there were the, the streets of Manhattan themselves were lined with people uh, watching this parade. Of course, the, the, the end of the parade was always here comes Santa Claus, where of course Santa somehow arrives on his float. But watching this was, you know, it was it was always I I can't, I, I can't explain why it, it it captured my I fancy to sit there and watch a parade when I wasn't even standing out there. But still, the idea of Thanksgiving and parades, I don't know that the Macy's parade ever mean anything to you at all. No, I'm afraid to say it didn't. My Thanksgiving was focused on what was then just the one football game of Detroit hosting somebody. And when I was a child, it was always Green Bay from the early 50s to the mid-60s. They only played Green Bay. And um, earlier before that, I think Channel 11 used to show a local high school football game, Iona versus New Rochelle. Well, I think it was Spencer Ross doing the broadcasting. But no, the, the parade, it never never really did speak to me. I mean, you knew about it. You, oh, yeah. You consciously sure. ignored it. It wasn't something that you were drawn. Right. Like, why? Right? And you didn't have, it was never a thought from your parents or your step parents to, uh, to bring you down there and to line the parade route and uh, like other little kids to watch what was going on. No, the, the only thing they would take me to over the years were invariably be just historical trips to Philadelphia, to Independence Hall, science trips, Museum of Natural History. The, the fact was this was not educational. This had no, this had other than the, as we say in the Yiddish, a trask. All it was was that like, it was a, like a, a, it, was a, it was a trask without uh, a soul. I think without a soul. I think that's the key. That it, it was a, maybe for some children, the idea of seeing Bullwinkle and nothing I'm saying should enable our listeners to infer any dissing of, of Bullwinkle on my part. But um, it was a task without any any nishamas. Those balloons, I mean, this was really a the the, the energy that that the Macy's company put into this was incredible. And and its success spelled, of course, in the dollars that would result in the in the incredible this 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 holy shopping period. In a sense, you might say that you know, following that famous quote that the business of America is business, that Thanksgiving Day Parade was celebrating part of the American soul, which was that sort of hyper capitalist uh, profit mode of soul. So maybe it was celebrating. I would say parades are a ritualization of dogma. So that in a sense, maybe the Macy's Day Parade was just that. Well, again, I think there's a lot to what you're saying. But I think I, this is really where I want to get started with parades and marches. Because 
at a parade, of course, you're you're a spectator and you're watching uh, something that has been developed uh, to entertain, to uh, to give voice to, to embody, to be able to emblemize power, to emblemize what we stand for. That people should be standing and, and applauding floats. By the way, these floats originally did float. And the word float came from the fact that there were passion plays that were performed throughout the Middle Ages, and especially uh, in the life of Christ, that would have to have 48 or 49 uh, different series of aspects of his life. And they had to bring up to the Thames River, they had to bring all these pieces. And in order for them uh, to do that, the people walking in the parade would be carrying these floats, which were floating in the water. And that really became the idea of a float. But the idea was to give a symbolic, like Avedi Zora almost like, uh, a symbolic recreating of some sort of important scene. Well, this is the, you know, the Sefer Achinuch always tells us that we need physical embodiments of uh, of doctrine and, and belief. So that a parade or a protest march or a rally is all, I mean, the, the examples I can think of are all doing that. They, they are providing physical incarnation of a body of belief, loyalty, anger, etc., so human beings need that. We're not just uh, detached intellectual beings floating in the air. We need this worldly incarnations of our belief systems. Okay. So as I said to you yesterday when we were talking about this, I, I don't think either of us you know, are parade goers, but we we can watch and understand why others go. And and, and you, you mentioned marches, and I think it's – I mentioned it earlier as well. The march – Everybody is part of it. You know, the onlookers are gawkers. Uh, they aren't meant to, you know, th- they should get out of the way. The The onlookers on the parade are essential. <laughs> if nobody mm-hmm. shows up to watch the parade, of course, the parade is meaningless. Whereas the march, everybody is somehow part of this. And I mentioned to you yesterday that it seemed to me, you know, obviously the the, the term march has connections to the god of war. Is it possible that all these marches are really meant to reenact some sort of uh, military struggle. Uh, yeah. struggle? Struggle, I think. That they're meant to to give focus to a given struggle. I think sometimes the onlookers are part of it. In other words, the, the two examples that leaped to my mind as we were talking here, I was thinking of the Israeli Day Parade in New York, an annual event in New York, and I was thinking also of July 12th in Belfast, the great um, loyalist Protestant holiday in Belfast. And the, the people sitting on the sides of the march are a little more than gawkers. They, they may not be the, the first row of participants, but they are by their being there and they're looking and singing or waving, let's say, you know, Israeli flags by the Israeli day parade or, or waving the redhead flag in in, in um, Northern Ireland, so that you're getting participate. The audience are not just gawkers; they are participants. I was a well-read kid from a, 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 a town that had rabbonim, that had very brilliant talmidei chachamim, and I knew nothing about 
Yom Atzmaut at all. And when I started to teach in a, a modern high school, that was my first exposure to the importance, not just of Yom Atzmaut, which of course, you know, by that time I knew was, 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 when we can talk about that a different day, but even, you know, post Yom Atzmaut, there was something called the Israel Day Parade. And it was incumbent not only to be there and to make sure you had no excuse whatsoever, but there was also the, uh, the idea that you had to be a chaperone and you had to wear the colors of the school. And, and I don't know how many schools were part of it. it. seemed to me there were about 45 or 50 schools. All the modern Orthodox high schools and probably some Salman Shechter schools as well. No, no schools from the Haredi world of any sort, but the entire gamut of modern Orthodox schools marched. And I think the further, I don't want to use the term left here, this might be misleading, but the further sort of left within modern orthodoxy, the more this took on tremendous significance, which is not to say that the MTAs and JACs and DRSs did not attend. They did. And as the years went on, it became more and more of a Kiev in those schools. But the full fervor of the, the floats and the dances and the uniforms, that was reserved for the Ramazes and the Flatbushes and, and those sorts of places. So there was a, a, a slight divide as to how fervently one, one approached that day. So, so it was a march. We somehow were representing a school that Zionism and the love of the Medina was a bedrock of our school. Otherwise, what are we doing? That whatever it is we do in our school, different perhaps than uh, Ramaz and Frisch or the other schools, what flowed through our school and what was important to it was the fact that there is this country called Eretz Yisrael, called Medinas Yisrael. The participants on these Israel Day parades we've mentioned were generally the schools and some other organizations, but it was important for the audience to also be part of it. And they were cheering and watching. And generally, it was not un unlike the Macy's Day Parade, where, you know, they you sort of, you can wave to the crowd. It wasn't considered verboten, you know, to even go over and break rank and to shake hands with somebody out there. And I think part of it was the positive spirit that uh, united for Avas Medina Yisrael. I think that was the idea. Now, in terms of... And, and a social event. Let, let's not neglect the social event here because it was a way to meet your friends that you knew from camp. Uh, for the all-boys schools, it was a way to meet girls that you might have known. There was a, a festive social atmosphere to the whole thing. It wasn't marching in the sense of fierce determina determination. It was more marching in kind of a... I don't want to call it frolicsome way. It was sort of a happy festival. Well, it was it was a lot less than five miles. It was just a couple of blocks, you know. And yes, you're right. The the uh, pizza shop meetings afterwards were 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 extremely important. I always felt that, given the degree in which it was stated in the catechism of these schools, given the degree to which um, Zionism featured prominently in that catechism. They did not invest the amount of time and effort that I would have invested if, if I would have been in charge of promulgating their doctrines. You know, Sotman invests more time in promulgating their anti-Zionist doctrines than all these schools invested in promoting their pro-Zionist doctrines. 
And I'll even tell you a humorous vignette here that when I first came to MTA, you had not yet kidnapped the student body. And I'll explain what I mean by that. The school would dismiss and you could go home. And I believe even the buses went home on Sunday before the parade. And then at some point, since the turnout was so small, what they did was they said, the buses to take you home will meet you at the end of the parade route, thus, in effect, kidnapping certainly those students who live in the suburbs, but kidnapping almost everybody to attend the parade. And the parade grew as the years went on. And the same thing in Shiva High School of Queens, where I started out, or OTI, it was a very marginally attended parade. Now, again, as I say, the Ramazas and the Frishas and those places, you know, the Flatbush, it was, it was a very, very serious matter. And as the years went on, MTA signed up for it, why you signed up for it in a more fervent manner than they did in the 60s and 70s. The parade begins in the early 60s, so it's not like it was always there. It begins in the early 60s in sort of a, a haphazard fashion. I think that uh, MDS paraded, and then the next year Ben-Gurion came, and then sort of from that, the whole thing was born. But it became more uh, passionately attended. However, in terms of teaching doctrine, teaching Rav Cook, or teaching the major works of the movement, or teaching the history of Zionism, I always felt that these places, for all their talk, they never invested nearly, nearly enough time. The average kid in MTA or Ramaz or anywhere uh, could give you only the most perfunctory recitation of Zionist history, basic literary works, history of the country once it was created, uh, the doctrines of Rav Shmuel Molova, Rav Reines, Rav Cook. This was not part of their Sprach. Whereas in, in, in the Haredi world, whatever their positions were, whether anti or non-Zionism, you knew what different people said about different things. So I think there was a war at the heart of modern orthodoxy for just suburban, detached, comfortable living and the ideology and commitments of Zionism were always sort of warring for control of their souls. I think that when you are infused with ideas at a young age and they become sort of part of your child consciousness, it's very hard to up the ante and to begin to take apart and infuse them with a greater intellectualism and, and spirit. So th- what most of these schools had from the time that they were already four or five was blue and white celebrations, was happy birthday Israel, and, and therefore they the kids got used to a, a very primitive first grade type of understanding of this is something that we do. And it's always difficult to revisit what's already become embedded in the school, if I won't call it mentality, but in the school image, and then talk about it in strong intellectual or fascinating ways. I would I would ask at this point, and, and I'm, I'm accepting what you're saying, but the, the Satma Yingle knows when he's a Yingle to say, but when he gets to be 14, 15, 16, he is, if he's a serious boy, going to be taking himself to the old Moshe, to Al-Gulab, al et cetera, et cetera. 
And the man orthodox kid who's going to betake himself to Rav Kook, Rav Reines, uh, is microscopic. It's almost non-existent. And even in terms of the non-religiously dense writings of the movement, very little is done in terms of uh, intellectual, say, indoctrination. And I'm just making the point that in the case of the anti-Zionist world, that it, it moves from Tzion Fui to Leo Meshach. And in the pro-Zionist world, it doesn't move from the blue and whites uh, to, uh, to Rav Kook and Rav Reines. Right. You, I have to tell you that um, the lack of any sort of intellectual and textual abilities within these schools is something we've both bemoaned. It's pulling teeth to get someone uh, to get through a long Rashi on a piece of Gemara. And you at expect, best, at best, right, yes. And you expect to be able to parse something out of Oyrus from Rav Kook. Here's the difference: as wrong-headed and as blinder-eyed as many of the Satmar uh, Chaver might be, there is an inherent textual ability that every Hasidish kid has where they could open up a cipher, they can open up uh, and, and read it, and maybe they won't get the subtleties uh, like reading up a, a, a Rishon the way a, a Yeshiva Shalamdan would, but they can get through it. We all know that, oh, is this something, you know, that, that's part of my Hebrew studies that I have to do? So, so I think that's, that, I think that's part of why it's only the actual gifted or ones that are intellectually excited. Again, I'll give you two exceptions. I taught in two schools. I taught in SAR. And of course, SAR is a total different breed uh, than Kushner. SAR, uh, because of the parent body, because of where they're from, uh, these kids were actually on top of things did have were armed with ideas and arguments and 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 they were of a different ilk and there's a reason why SAR is uh, is 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 the cutting edge that it is i, I can't say it's everyone but you know it it, it it you know it it isn't the mini school percentage that you have in other modern schools it's the cutting edge of left wing monotheism yes can we, can we, yeah that's correct and and the other place and of course i i, I taught in chicago for in a modern high school for five and a half years, Ida Crown Jewish Academy. And although there was no Israel Day parade that was similar to what we've been talking about, there was in that school a strong emphasis on Yom Atzmot and Yom Yerushalayim. And what I did in, and, and I felt was a very powerful thing, I, I, I've always had great connections, as you know, uh, to the Chesidah Shevelt. When I was teaching, I would bring in Chesidusha, sometimes Satmer, but sometimes just regular Chesidusha Hevra, who would come to speak to my class about the Shita of the Charedim. And boy, that was always exciting. To have them describe why Charedim don't serve in the army, you know, to challenge them, uh, right. to challenge uh, the kids. Uh, on, on, on and, and that would really get them interested uh, to really uh, shore up their arguments. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is, yeah. to answer your point before, one of the reasons why in these schools you don't have is because you don't have 
the dynamism of debate. Well, believe. Yeah. Right, 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 right. There's, there's obviously the, there's a reason why the school was able to pay Kivalevich a full salary plus 25 other teachers and to be able to support two gyms and a lab, et cetera, et cetera. People go there for a certain comfortability. But yes. there's also the fact that it's not like they, there, there is this hot lava molten challenger. And when you do insert that, then you sort of get back. That's true. They, 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 they avoid they avoid conflict at any costs. Many years ago, Torah Academy of Bergen County, TABC, called me up and they said they want to host on Yom Ha'atzma'ut a debate on Zionism. And Rabbi Stephen Przansky, I'm sure you're aware of his writings, is a staunch religious right wing. And they wanted me to do anti. So I said to them, listen, I can do anti if you want. I can do pro if you want. I can do any of them. But (laughs) you really need a non. So call up the Agudas Israel and get somebody to come down and present the non-Zionist position because their position is not anti-Zionism. It's non. They've taken the issue off the table. They refuse to deal with it in any serious fashion. He's got to come to you. You need a non as well. So I'm going to make a long story short. The Agudas didn't send anybody. They called me back. And I said, you know what? I'll do both. I'll do none and I'll do anti. I'll be two people at this event presenting both, both schools of opinion. So again, it was really wonderful. And the student body was energized by it and the kids crowded around afterwards. But to give you a humorous footnote here. So when each of us was asked to sort of say in one or two sentences what we wanted, what we believed. So Robert presents to get up and he said, you know, since today is Yom Samut, I want to wish the student body and we should all have a, you know, and then I said, well, as an anti, I want to wish everybody here an easy fast and be able to find and as a non, I said, I want to ask, what are we doing here? Let's get back to the base medrash. What's this all about? So, and it was very, very engaging, very humorous, and all the kids gathered around, but these schools have become increasingly fearful and averse to any ideas, any exchange of ideas. Again, they just want fun and frolic forever. And um, unfortunately, that really silences any ideological passion among their students. Look, you know, I, I mentioned how I want our conversations not to necessarily exist in a specific time period bound by events that are current, but Anybody who is listening during this period clearly realizes that a lot of our discussion today is informed by the most recent march, the march to uh, in Washington that was uh, happened on November 14th, and the brouhaha that erupted when the Aguda recanted at the last minute, and the discussion about, you know, was this march worthwhile, was it not? And and I think you know in in many ways this this was a march, but it was not. It was much more than a march because you know does does the march have to end with a a six hour production? You know, right? Like we've talked about a march symbolizing a a battle, symbolizing an ideal. Uh, it, it's the numbers themselves. It, it, spectators become part of it. It, it, it. We are all, in a way, just another physical being that is added 
to the mass and and every single number counts. And yet, I, I think so much of the issues, unlike the Israel Daily Parade and other marches that we've been talking about, the event of not just walking, being, but then being an audience and hearing and somehow listening and responding somehow became the focal point. And that is what the, the, the issues have been swirling about, about whether this was a proper thing and, and, and was, it, was it positive or not. My my thought on all this, and here I, I have to insist on the, the gap between rhetoric and reality in many movements' presentation of themselves, and that if the Rosh Hashivas who came out with the Isser on the morning of the event, I think actually uh, talked about we we have to do his bodless, we must separate from from these people and the Tailung and the Austrit and all the Masura of separation and so forth. This is not our event. Bad ideas would be presented there. And I thought afterwards, they don't really mean the bad ideas. They're not thinking that, what's the first name? Heiji, John Heiji, is going to convince these 300,000 Jews to convert to evangelical Christianity, uh, which one of the Rosh Hashivas said, and I find childish and preposterous, but what, what really is at work here is that those worlds, the, the stark yeshivish world and the chassidish world, do not want to be in any way socially intertwined with either modern orthodoxy or with non-orthodoxy. And I expressed it in this way. Could you envision Skveri Yeshiva showing up at a march Surrounded by Ramazers and Frishers and Flappishes. It's inconceivable. The parts, the parts don't fit. There's don't fit. So when the Rosh Hashivas say, uh, Austrit and Doctrine and Reform and Germany, they don't mean that. What they really mean is we don't want our children to be involved in a relaxed, social, uh, affable, uh, way with non-Orthodox or, or non-Orthodox. And, and that's the central question. And and I do understand their fears. I, I don't think their fears are groundless. Now, the other side of the coin is the passionate Ahavis Israel doctrine, which incidentally, Rabbi Eisenman's article, which I think Slifkin put on his website today, is excellent. He's this Robin Passaic who talks about how he went to the rally and he was uh, overwhelmed. He was awed by the love of of Yidin and Torah that he encountered amongst the, the not yet from, as Rabbi Riskin once called them. He, he was awed by it. So that's the other side of the coin. If we were there and we were open and we were accessible and we were friendly, who knows what could happen, particularly at this point in history, when you no longer have the old-time merits haters, so to speak, of Torah, you have a very different world today, which is open, which is open and has the, has our hearts and minds open. So that's the other side of the coin. So again, this is one of those areas where I hear I hear both tunes. I, I hear the niggin being sung by both sides here. But surely to say that the problem here is uh, Pastor Hagee speaking, I think that's a little, little, little ludicrous. But if you square a girls' school, Shabbat's alongside Ramaz, it doesn't make it just doesn't add up. The idea that that march was Pikuach Nefesh struck a chord with me. I didn't see it as Pikuach Nefesh, but if that 
as Ravarn Feldman articulated, was the case. So if it was true that every person that came somehow added to the firm determination that that Israel would be supported militarily and that Hamas would not be allowed to continue attacking. The Haredim like to say that their Torah and Eretz Yisrael is Magini Amatzli, right? So I always say, why does the number of people that have to learn in order to protect you grow in direct proportion to the amount of Talmidim you have in your yeshivas? In other words, in 1948, 300 boys was beginning a matzli. Today it's 130,000 who are beginning a matzli. Why is it in direct proportion to your student body? And same thing with this protest. I mean, where there's 200,000, 240,000. The goal of trying to, you know, keep Joe Biden in, in this situation, which he has somehow stumbled into, you know, I don't think it matters very much whether the Lakewood shows up or not. But still, I think, you know, we, you know, I think it's in many people's minds the idea of, what is gained by March? So I want, and here's the last thing I want to end with. It is the 60th anniversary of another event, an event that I actually do, although I do not remember the Friday afternoon actual event. I do remember that for three days afterwards, including Sunday, I, I, I could not watch cartoons because right. there was a funeral that was being held. And uh, I remember watching the television and and my mother explaining to me that the president of the United States, of course, I'm talking about the Kennedy assassination. I just want to mention, as we talked about marches, parades, motorcades, the term is probably most in most people's minds associated with the Kennedy motorcade that was in Dallas. I think it was Dealey Square. Yep. And uh, this was, you know, Kennedy was coming to uh, Texas, I think, to shore up John Connolly and his administration. But because of the, the, the first couple's popularity, I don't know who decided that it shouldn't just be Kennedy arrives to meet with the bigwigs in the smoke-filled rooms, but to actually have a a motorcade where people would be lining the streets of where Kennedy would be uh, as he would be being taken to Dealey Plaza. So I just wanted, that was the, I wanted to throw at you, you know, a a motorcade is sort of like a parade. Um, Yes, it's a celebration, yeah. I'd say a little footnote to that day, because I think very often we talk about changing times and different eras. So I was at a student in Khaki at junior high then in uh, seventh grade, and they, the principal came over the public address system, and the first reports were that the president had been shot. Right. And it was only like 20 minutes or a half hour later that it was verified that he had been killed. And let me just say that we had a school maybe of 2,000 kids. It was a huge junior high school. And all classes just kind of ended. All the students wandered out into the hallways in whispering silence. Because everybody was just so shocked and overwhelmed. The teachers stopped teaching. And can you imagine 2,000 teenage kids in total silence? And the buses came shortly thereafter. And we boarded the buses in a whispering silence. Because it it was just so shattering and gut-wrenching. And 
and unbelievable. And and I, for my part, being a fairly staunch Kennedy critic up till that point and thereafter as well, I had to watch who I was standing by at that point because I didn't want anybody to remember how clearly I had denounced him that very morning on the bus. But again, this is a different time today. I don't think today the degree of respect, the awe which the president carried. Now, I don't know if that would have been the case in Memphis, but certainly in New York, that was the case. No, well, again, remember, I was much younger, but I I grew up starting the Hebrew Academy with, it was only two years after Kennedy's death, where where his image was hugely emblazoned everywhere. He was turned into a getchka almost immediately after his death. And not 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 in Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, and Georgia. No, but even in Tennessee, where I was, there was there there was a a, a solemnity. There was a, a sense of his heroism. It was copies of, of profiles and courage. Where it was of course this book that he didn't write. I, I think there it wafted over the whole country. And I think televisions, which we've talked about, this was this was an event that was surreal that television tried to make real. And again, television became the place where America went to in order to not only communally mourn, but to be connected to the events because they did happen on television. When Oswald was finally apprehended and Jack Ruby shot him, this was all on lot. This was, this was live. Sunday morning. The Ruby thing was Sunday morning. Yes. And, and of course, as the, Warren Commission looked into this assassination. There's a Pruder film, of course. Ayid, here's Abe Zapruder. He he's farchaped by this handheld chachkala that he has, that he's able to to hold this because of course America was was fascinated with Kodak and anything that where you could film actually you could make your own movies. And he decided he was going to film Kennedy here in Dallas. And of course, the Zapruder film, of course, becomes the most famous piece of film, outstripping probably, you know, Citizen Kane and Ben-Hur and any film ever made as the most watched and analyzed film ever. So as we as we sum up here, there's that event, I think, was so seminal. And, and I think it closed the door, I think, on the criticism because it was Achrei Mois Kedoshim, and it really allowed a ballooning of many things that I know are an anathema to you philosophically and politically in terms of the types of legislation and things that Johnson basically decided he was going to do. He was going to out Kennedy Kennedy after yep. his his death. When, when you say politics makes strange bedfellows, this pairing of these two was, you know, uh, was as audacious and as obvious as Obama Biden. I mean, come on, right? <laughs> I, I would say the, a pragmatist with a phony idealist. That's what I would say. But um, I just want, if I could just make one final point, because I did want to mention this: that history has been shaped very often by parades and marches. Uh, yesterday we were talking about this, and I, I can't get away from. Uh, Father Capone in St. Petersburg in 1905 and Sharpville in South Africa, 1960, I think it was, uh, Bloody Sunday in, uh, in Derry in Northern Ireland, the Boston Massacre, for example, so that protests, particularly if they generate 
passion, marching, protesting. Um, Selma, you know, the, the, the Pettus Bridge. So uh, marches are not simple. They do uh, serve to make people passionate. They, they incarnate ideas, and often they change the course of history. They do. Especially if we talk about the motorcade in Dallas, because yeah. Yeah. There, there's, you know, there's no question about it that Kennedy's assassination changed the course of so much of, of, mm-hmm. of the, where America was going and America's uh, reflection of itself. We're going to march back out of here. Enjoy. Uh, we'll ca- hopefully catch you uh, soon. Take care, everybody. Be well. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.